Why don't we go and stand up and we're going to read the word of the Lord, Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, just seven verses today. And, um, but man, it is packed full of good stuff. And so we're going to just have fun with that. Revelation chapter 2, 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, you toil and you, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And so, Lord, we thank you for your word. And as we teach from this passage of Scripture today in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, I pray, Lord, that you would give us what is needed for instruction in righteousness, for truth for our lives, Lord God, that we would be spiritually fed today by your grace. Lord, that we would be receiving sustenance from your word and from your spirit, strengthening us to go out to do the work that you've called us to do, but also to love you the way that we loved you at first. And so, Lord God, help us never lose sight of that important element, the the cornerstone on which we build our lives that we are loved and we are and that we are that we love you because you first loved us and so lord let that be the cornerstone of our lives in jesus name we pray amen amen, amen. you may be seated so last week we looked at the revelation the outline of revelation in revelation chapter 1 verse 19 and it says this right therefore the things that you have seen those that are and those that are to take place after this. And so as a point of just remembrance, the things that you have seen speaks to Revelation chapter 1, the vision of the exalted Christ that John saw. So right about the things that you have seen, the things that are, and that pertains to what we're going to be talking about for these next number of weeks, probably seven weeks as we teach through Revelation chapter 2 and 3, uh, going over the letters to the seven churches. And then the things that are to take place after this is everything after chapter 3. So it's chapters 4 and 5. And when we get there, and we've kind of highlighted a little bit, of, but it's the scene of heaven that John is, uh, that God reveals to John. It's pretty powerful stuff. And then we get into the tribulation period that it's in chapter 6. 
through 19, and then the kingdom of Christ in chapter 20, and the new heavens and the new earth in chapters 21 and 22. I just went back and reread uh, chapter 22 this morning, just as I think sometimes it's helpful for us to see how it all wraps up again <laughs> as we're going through the intimate details of this book, this revelation. It's helpful to be reminded that it all wraps up very nicely and wonderfully so because Jesus is on the throne. And so Revelation 2 and 3 are letters written to the church then and now. These are letters written to the church age. The church age is the time between Pentecost and all the way leading up to the rapture. So Pentecost to the rapture is the church age, and so we are part of the church age. And so this letter is written to the church then and to the church now, to the church that is on the earth currently. Theologian Walvoord wrote... Since the seven letters of Revelation 2 and 3 are written to all Christian churches at all times, in all places, it is regrettable that these messages of encouragement, rebuke, and warning are not more carefully studied by modern-day Christians. And so we're going to, as modern-day Christians, study the encouragement and the rebuke and the warning that are recorded in these seven letters to the seven churches. So as we study this first letter, we understand and respond to this letter and all of these seven letters in the same way that we would respond to the epistles, the letters written by the apostles to the early church. We read these letters and we respond with faith believing that God has breathed this information, this revelation for us, we respond to it with teachability and with obedience. So every time we open up the word of God, it's about receiving it, responding to it with faith and teachability and ultimately obedience. That faith and teachability actually leads us to obedience. And so epistles are written, uh, they're letters written by, by God, Holy Spirit breathed, God breathed inspired and spoken letters through human instruments written to the church in the first century and also to every Christian church in the church era. So for example, the apostle Paul wrote under the inspiration of God, a letter, an epistle to the church in Ephesus. And this epistle is called the book of Ephesians. This first letter is also written to the church in Ephesus. All of the churches were in close proximity to one another. Uh, all of the letters and all of the churches that were written, let's go ahead and throw that map up there so we can see. Hey, the map's there. That's good. Some of us are laughing because the map wasn't there last week, <laughs> or maybe it was two weeks ago, whenever it was. So you can see up there that number one is the first church, and that's where the first letter was sent to Ephesus. And if you look, they're all in close proximity to each other. And if you look at the bottom left of the screen, you see Patmos, and that's where John was exiled to from where he wrote the letters. And so he wrote the letters and then sent them around to the churches. So let's unpack this letter. Revelation 2, 1 through 7, to the angel of the church 
of Ephesus writes, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Interesting, the word angel is used. So as we read Daniel and studied through Daniel, in Daniel chapter 1, we read that Michael, according to Daniel 12, 1, was actually the angel, the archangel in charge of the people of Israel. Then, and I believe now. So there's an angel over the people of God, represented by the people of Israel. And then it it appears that there are angels over the churches as well, to the angel of the church of Ephesus. Now, it, it stands to reason that if there were angels, if there's an angel, Michael, over the people of Israel, if there was an angel over the church at Ephesus, then it stands to reason that there is an angel over the church of the central coast, the big C church. So we're reminded that we're a church on the central coast, but we're not the only church on the central coast. And so I would imagine that there's a maybe an angel, just guessing here, that there's an angel over this area of the churches, the capital C church of the central coast. But then there's probably also angels over the small C church, so over our church and other Christian churches in the region. So it's very cool for, to, for me to think about that stuff because it helps me to remember, it helps us to remember that we're not in this alone. We've got the word of God that is given for instruction, the power of God through the spirit of God that is given to strengthen us, to give us endurance to do what God has called us to do. But then God also dispatches angels to help make sure that the churches are watched over. So there's a powerful uh, just presence of the living God when you are a church. And so these letters were written to the angels, in this case of the church of Ephesus. And some would, some would say that those weren't actually angels. Um, that word angels can also, it's angelos, can also be interpreted messenger. In fact, Jesus called John the Baptist a messenger using that same word, angelos. And so some would assert that these these letters weren't actually written to the angels, but to messengers. So a messenger might be a pastor, an elder, or an apostle, somebody like that. But if we interpret Scripture with Scripture, which is the only proper way to interpret Scripture, then we know that no other letters that God wrote to churches were ever written to the leaders of the churches, the pastor or the elders, it was always written to the church in general. And so our position, my position, is that these were angels with the assignment to watch over the word of the Lord that was spoken to the church so that the church might receive it and respond to it. So to the angel, Angelos, of the church in Ephesus, right. The words of him, Jesus, who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So again, uh, from chapter one, we know that the stars represent what? The angels, all right, the angels of the churches, and the lampstands represent the churches. It's it's, It's important that we get this symbolism down. And so the stars, the seven stars represent the angels of the churches, and the golden lampstand represents the seven churches. Notice, with every letter, there is a different description of Jesus given. With all seven letters, there's a description 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. Dic uh, descriptors that declare the glory, power, and authority of Jesus. Let's look at it again. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. If we remember what was written in Revelation chapter one, verse 16, we know for sure that this is a descriptor of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And with every letter, there's a different descriptor. All of those descriptors are found in Revelation chapter one. So there's a real connection. Everything is tied together as we read all about Jesus in Revelation chapter one. We're reminded of his attributes in Revelation chapter two and three when we study through these letters written to the churches. So over and over again, we're reminded of the splendor of Jesus Christ. Don't you need that in your life? We all need that in our lives. In fact, it is my job as a pastor to remind us every time I get up into the pulpit, every Bible teacher's responsibility is to simply remind the people of God of the plans of God, the power of God, and the purposes of God in the earth. So over and over again in these letters written to the people of God in the churches in Asia Minor, there in modern day Turkey, we are reminded of the splendor of Jesus the Lord. And over and over again, we, we are told that it is Jesus who wrote these letters. It is Jesus who wrote this letters, these letters. So what did Jesus say to the church in Ephesus? Verse two, he said, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for the names uh, for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. So Jesus begins in this letter by commending his followers, by commending, complimenting, praising this church for what they are doing and how they're living. Jesus said, I know your works. And so the people of the church of Ephesus were working for the kingdom of God. And that work brought trouble their way. The word toil in verse two speaks of trouble. And so it wasn't just work, but it was difficult work because it brought trouble their way. And understanding the background that we'll unpack in just a moment of the city of Ephesus we know that they were up against godless, a godless culture, and so it brought trouble to their door when they stood for righteousness. I wonder if that's happening in our day and age. When we stand against the culture, the godless culture, and stand for righteousness, it will usher in trouble for us in the kingdom. Church also had patient endurance as they worked and toiled for the kingdom. In the New Testament, patient endurance speaks of the characteristic, listen, the characteristic of a person who is not swayed from his deliberate purpose and his loyalty to faith and piety by even the greatest trials and suffering. So this church was known for their patient endurance. I believe that if the church in the 21st century, Harvest and the church, the Big C Church, isn't known for our patient endurance, we will not stand firm until the end. We hear about all kinds of people having their faith deconstructed because they're 
giving up and giving in to the sway of the world. They're having their faith deconstructed because they're buying in more to the wisdom of the world, the knowledge of the world, than they are staying with and believing the timeless principles and truth of the word of God. And so we need to be careful that we're not allowing the world to sway us, but we need to be patiently enduring as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we patiently endure as the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, we're gonna read about it. We, we must guard the love that we have in our hearts for the Lord. We must not lose our first love. If we can hold on to that, and if we can do all of our work that, that, that we do for the kingdom because of what our remembrance of the love that God has shown us and, and holding close to the love that we have for him, that we will endure with patient endurance. And verse two says, you cannot bear with those who are evil. Ephesus was a pure church. We talked about that last, uh, last week, talked about staying, you know, what we must do to uh, stand firm. We must be a pure people. Ephesus was a pure church. They did not put up with base, wrong, or wicked people. So let's get some background of Ephesus. Ephesus was the most important city in Asia Minor. So if you look back, at, remember that map, Asia Minor uh, in current day Turkey, modern day Turkey, uh, all of those seven churches were there. And the first one that is mentioned, the first letter went to uh, Ephesus. Ephesus was, the, Ephesus was the most important city in Asia Minor, but it was given over to wickedness, the city, not the church. According to theologian William Barclay, Heraclitus, one of the most famous of the ancient philosophers, was known as the weeping philosopher. Why was Heraclitus the weeping? And his name can be pronounced a few different ways, so you don't need to come up to me after church and say, oh, it's actually Heraclitus. I actually went online and tried to figure out how to properly pronounce his name, and there's like 14 different ways to pronounce his name. So I'm going to go with Heraclitus. Good? All right, good, good. According to theologian William Barclay, Heraclitus, one of the most famous of the ancient philosophers, was known as the weeping philosopher. His explanation of his tears was that no one could live in Ephesus without weeping at its immorality. Isn't that interesting? Ephesus was known most of all by its goddess Diana, or Artemis. We talked about this when we studied Ephesians earlier. Um, I think it was earlier in this year. Ephesus was the center of worship of Diana. And the temple of Diana was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. A temple, one of the seven, you know, we've got wonders of the world. In the ancient world, this, this temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Its size was tremendous. It was also a sanctuary for criminals. Uh, if a criminal could get there, they were guaranteed safety. So it was a very corrupt city very idolatrous city. The temple grounds were filled with prostitutes, pagan priests, dancers, and criminals. And the worship of Diana was extremely vile. The idol itself was grotesque, a mini-breasted looking thing. I didn't put up a picture because I didn't want to put up a picture. <laughs> if you want to go take a look, you take a look. Uh, it's a grotesque, mini-breasted looking thing, which was believed to have fallen from heaven so it was against this background that the church was heralding the message of 
Christ. So interesting season for that church, interesting culture, interesting and difficult time. The description of the church continues, you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. And so the scripture is filled with examples, Old and New Testament, examples of people who claim to represent God, and that's essentially what an apostle does, a person claiming to represent God. And so Old and New Testament, then and now, there are people who claim to represent God. And so we're told over and over again, I don't have time to unpack it, but over and over again in the New Testament to test those who call themselves to be apostles or representatives of God. And so that's what this church was known for. It was known for standing for truth, working for the kingdom, holding on to their purity, doing wonderful works for the kingdom of God. And so lots of things to be praised for. Ephesus was a strong church and Jesus commended their strength, but Jesus was not satisfied with their strength alone. He required their hearts. Interesting that all of these good things were happening within that church, but Jesus had strong words for them because their heart had grown cold. And that's a temptation for all of us as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. The temptation for us is to just get busy doing kingdom work, but not keeping an intimate walk with the Lord strong in our lives. We get a tendency in a culture to be super, super, super busy. I mean, in our culture, everybody's busy, whether it's in the church or outside the church, seven days a week, 24-7, everybody's busy. And I think it's a ploy of the enemy to keep people busy enough so that they're distracted, so they're not focused on the most important things in life. I mean, I know I'm dating myself a little bit, but when I was growing up, there, was no, there were no sports on Sunday morning, Right? Even if he didn't go to church, it was a day of rest, a day of rest for the family. But now, man, sports are happening seven days a week, and uh, people are busy seven days a week, and there's no time to just stop and breathe. And for believers, it's, you know, we, we're distracted and we're pulled in a thousand different ways, even on Sunday morning. So Jesus wasn't satisfied with their strength alone. He required their hearts. Verse four says, but I have this against you, Jesus said to the church, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Right? You have abandoned the love you had at first. And so they were very busy doing very good things and godly things. They were Banding the kingdom of God, protecting the kingdom of God, proclaiming the kingdom of God, but their hearts had grown cold toward the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We love him because he first loved us. Again, that's the cornerstone of our faith, that we are loved and that we reciprocate that love out of gratitude for who Jesus is. So Jesus is speaking of the initial love and excitement that people have when first when they first receive the grace, mercy, and the love of God. I think back, whether it was you know six months ago or 16 years ago or 160 years ago, think back to when you first gave your life to Jesus. You couldn't wait, in most cases, to get back to church. In fact, <laughs> 
we would go to church three or four times a week in some regards, small groups, Sunday morning, Sunday night, midweek church. It was just a thing that we did, and we were always excited to be there for the most part. We just had this love and excitement for Jesus. We wanted to be with the people of God. We wanted to worship. There was an excitement about worshiping Jesus. There was an excitement about reading the Bible. I was talking to my brother-in-law, and he said, when I first got saved, I would just devour the Word of God. He, he, I would read through the whole Bible twice every year, and I just was devouring the Word of God. He just had this incredible uh, hunger for the things of God. We couldn't wait to tell others about Jesus. We were just excited about who Jesus is and what he's all about. It's a similar, uh, similar to the feeling when we first fall in love with you know, our spouse or our significant other. We first, when we first fall in love, man, you just can't wait to be with that person, right? I mean, you spend every waking moment thinking about that person, communicating with that person, wanting to be with that person because there's just such an incredible, strong love for that person. But think about a marriage that's been going for 10 or 20 or, or 30 years. The temptation is to let that passion go by the wayside you're still married and still maybe serving one another and still you know, committed to the relationship, but there's just something dead in the relationship. There's not a passionate love and connection anymore, but that does not, <laughs> and I'm gonna say that cannot be the case if we expect in our marriage relationships to finish strong till the end and in our relationship with Jesus, if we expect to finish strong to the end. We must, Jesus gives some instruction here in verse five, remember therefore from where you have fallen. So remember, think back. Jesus is talking about the loss of your first love or the love that you had at first. Remember what that looked like. And that was kind of what we were doing this exercise this morning, thinking about what it was like when we first gave our lives to Jesus. And then, so we remember and then repent and do the works you did at first. And so we need to repent. We need to change our mind about that loss of love in our hearts. And so it's something like this. Jesus, I, I feel distant from you. And I, I, I don't even know why, but I don't feel like I loved you like I used to love you. And I, I don't know when that changed, but man, I remember what it, used to be like. I was so excited about you, Jesus, and so happy to be you know, adopted into your family and called a child of God. I'm just so thankful, Jesus, <laughs> for what you did. And I remember I was so excited then, <clears throat> but God, I, I seem to have lost that along the way. I don't know when, uh, but I, Lord, I, I repent of that. You see, love isn't just a feeling or an emotion. It certainly is a feeling and an emotion, but love is a decision that we make. We decide by God's grace that we're gonna love Jesus in word, thought, and deed. We're gonna love Jesus with all of our hearts. And that's true in our marriage relationships as well. There's an easy parallel here to marriage relationships. We're actually called the bride of Christ. And so there's an easy parallel there. And so in your marriage relationship, you, you, you might need to remember how your love relationship used to be and then repent of where you are now because it's the natural tendency 
And notice I said natural and not supernatural. It's a natural tendency to allow our hearts to kind of get a little preoccupied, a little hardened, a little busy, a little distracted from the most important stuff. And so, again, we may be in a marriage and there's cooperation, but is there intimacy and connection and I think with our walk with the Lord, our intimacy should improve with time and not diminish. And I think, I haven't been married as long as some of you in the room, but I've been married for a long time. And so having experienced some length as a married man and the seasons of life as a married man, I think that it's possible and even God's designed that we would grow in our intimacy and connection as husband and wife. Now, it's not naturally going to happen because naturally things begin to diminish, but supernaturally so. And so we need to invite God into, well, our relationship with him. <laughs> and that's a concept that we need to make sure we're clear about, right? Because it seems like the church in Ephesus was busy doing everything for God, but had forgotten about their connection to God. So they were busy for God, but they weren't connected to him as evidenced by the letter that Jesus wrote to them. You have forgotten about your first love. You have left your first love. You have lost your first love. And so we have this profound opportunity to stoke the fires of that love for the Lord in our relationship with the Lord and make sure that we're remembering what God did in the beginning, repent of our hardened hearts, cold hearts, whatever it may, may be. Repent, as you know, just means to change our mind about that. And so we're saying, Lord, I, I'm not going to live like this anymore, distant from you, um, disconnected from you, but by your grace and supernaturally so, I'm going to return to my first love. In your marriage relationship, you might need to do the same thing, whether you've been married for a year or five years or 50 years. It's a discipline. Love is a discipline that declares, I will, by God's grace, continue to invite his grace and mercy into my life so that I can love my spouse the way that God has called me to love my spouse. There can be a lot of service in marriage relationship. Like, you know, somebody's doing laundry, somebody's cooking meals, somebody's cleaning up, someone's picking up the kids, someone's, you fill in the blank. But all too often, when the kids have grown and they're out of the house, mom and dad have been so busy taking care of the kids that they forgot about their marriage relationship, their connection, their intimacy, and their love relationship that brought them together in the first place. And so they're left with hollowness and emptiness in their marriage relationship. So again, love is, you say, well, I just don't feel in love anymore with God, with Jesus, or with your spouse. Repent. <laughs> and it's really as simple as that. We're saying, Lord, I'm 
owning this, I'm taking responsibility for this, and I'm changing my mind about this. And so I'm going to pursue you, Jesus, like I used to pursue you. And then I'm also going to pursue my spouse like I used to pursue my spouse. Right? So if you start doing those things, because that's true repentance, not just about saying, Lord, I'm sorry, uh, but it's about change of mind and change of conduct so that the outcome is different the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And so if your marriage or your relationship with Jesus is loveless, that is unacceptable according to Jesus because this church, this Ephesus church was stellar in every other regard. But Jesus rebukes them. Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not... I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Jesus is telling this church, I see all of the good that you're doing, but if you don't return to your first love, you cannot be my church. I think that's why a lot of churches in the world die because they get reduced to busyness. They get reduced to lots of activity, but not a lot of love and intimacy within the body of Christ. And so a church will never die, and the lampstand will never be removed. We will always be allowed to be a church. And listen, it's a privilege to be a church of the living God. And so Jesus is saying, unless you return to me as your first love, I will remove your lampstand. You cannot be just about busyness and activity. You cannot be disconnected from me, uh, from your heart, with your heart. You must engage with the whole, your whole existence. So maintaining your first love for Jesus, number one, remember what you're loved, what that love looked like. Remember. Number two, repent for allowing your love to grow cold. Number three, revive the love that motivated your work in the beginning. Three things, remember what that love looked like. We need to remember and reflect, thinking back, what that felt like, what that experience was like, what that connection was like, what that closeness was like. Remember. And then repent for allowing your love to grow cold. So God, you just need to own it. You need to own it in your relationship with Jesus, and you need to own it in your relationship with your spouse. If you don't own it in your relationship with Jesus, and if you don't own it in your relationship with your spouse, nothing will change. Remember, repent, and revive the love that motivated your work in the beginning. How do you revive it? Go back to the works that you did at first and for the reasons that you did those works at first. And so in the beginning of your relationship, you'd bend over backwards for your spouse. You would bring flowers or cook meals or bring gifts or send notes or letters or call 14 times a day and 
text a thousand times a day. You just do everything you can because you wanted to maintain that um, that, that love relationship. In the beginning with your walk with the Lord, you'd be in church at every given opportunity. You'd be reading the word, worshiping Jesus, not just at church, but man, in your car, in your house, you were just worshiper, a worshiper of Jesus. Verse five, if not, if you don't do these things, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Again, unless you repent. So repentance allows the church to remain a church. Interesting, right? Repentance allows a church to remain a church. So if we want to stay vibrant and alive as a church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we must be a people who are faithful to repent. We must be people who refuse to allow our hearts to grow indifferent. That's a terrible word, by the way. Because if you're indifferent to, think, to the things of God, but still trying to stay busy doing the work of God, that is a, a terrible way to live your life. If you're indifferent in your marriage relationship, but you're just staying busy under the same roof, that is a terrible way to live in a marriage relationship. You might stay married all the days of your life, but you're going to be pretty miserable doing it. As a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you might be in church for all the days of your life, but ultimately you're going to be pretty miserable doing it. So after Jesus chastises the church, he encourages them with another affirmation. <clears throat> That's good leadership, by the way, too. <laughs> you bookend in leadership, and, and when you're leading people, you always bookend criticism with praise. It's good in your marriage relationship as well. Whatever you do with that is good. Repentance allows the church. So after Jesus chastises the church, he encourages them with another affirmation. He says, yeah, this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Isn't that interesting that Jesus hates something? Notice it doesn't state, that he, doesn't state there that he hates the Nicolaitans, but he hates the works of the Nicolaitans. We don't know much about this group in John's day, but we know that this church and Jesus hated the works of this group. And from the context of this letter to this church, it's probably speaking about a group who are just false prophets, false representatives of the Lord Jesus Christ, probably leading people away. The name Nicolaitan means those who conquer the people. And so lots of really good things were happening within this church, good wisdom about how to act and protect the church, but they lacked love. So they looked good on the outside. <laughs> Maybe you look really good on the outside because it's people who make up the church, and so it's individuals within the church who make up the church so maybe you're looking really good on the outside, but on the inside, your heart is far from Jesus. Maybe your marriage looks really good on the outside, but internally it is imploding and falling apart. The remedy to these things is that we would repent, that we would remember our first love, repent, and return to the works that we did at first. Verse 7, as we close, he who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And just 
quickly. The, par- the tree of life we read about in Genesis, and because of sin, men were kept from the tree of life. We read about the tree of life again in the Proverbs, but we really read about the tree of life again at the end of it all in Revelation chapter 22, where because of the grace and the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have access to the tree of life. Revelation 22, 14 says, blessed are those who wash their robes. They will be permitted to enter through the gate of the city and eat the fruit from the tree of life. And so thinking about being washed and access that we have to new life, the tree of life in Jesus, I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward and we're going to take communion. And as we always encourage people during communion, it's important that we just don't blindly and in context with what we're talking about today, heartlessly go through the motions. Communion is what we do in remembrance of what Jesus did on the cross for us 2,000 years ago. And so we take communion remembering what Jesus did our love is revived. Our love for Jesus is revived as we, as we remember what he did and what it was like at first to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so before you take communion, please do some business with the Lord if you need to do business with the Lord. If you're not a believer please let this time pass because communion is a believer's practice in which believers in the Lord Jesus Christ remember what Jesus did. If you'd like to be, become a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can do that today. With everybody's eyes closed as we pray, if you want to become a believer and a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, please just declare to him In your heart, Jesus, I want to become a believer and a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Declare your heart to serve him and to follow him. Declare your gratitude for the grace that is available through the finished work on the cross at Calvary some 2,000 years ago and say something like this, Jesus, I, I need you and I want you into my life. God, I, I want to, love you and follow you all the days of my life. I want to serve you all the days of my life. And so today, Lord, today marks the beginning of my walk with you. I'm giving my life to you. As you declare that decision to the Lord in the quietness of your heart, the Lord responds to your declaration of faith and your your faith commitment, and he washes you and cleanses you and adopts you into his family. The Bible says that when one sinner comes to repentance, that all of heaven erupts in celebration. And so, Lord, thank you for people who come to faith. And so for those of us who need to recommit and rededicate and revive our love for you, I pray that we would do that as well. Say something like this, Lord Jesus, I remember what it used to be like, and I repent for allowing my heart to grow cold and Lord, I want my heart to be revived in Jesus' name. I want you to to refresh my walk with you and to give me fresh perspective and a heart of flesh and a, a heart that is filled with love and gratitude, Lord God. I want you to remind me, 
from what you saved me out of. Remind me of what you saved me out of, Lord God. Path of destruction onto the path of life. So we thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. 1 Corinthians 11.23 says, "For For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you when he was betrayed, that, excuse me, let me start over. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord, as we worship and take the elements, Lord, I pray that you be glorified and I pray that our hearts would be revived and refreshed in you. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go ahead and stand and worship. And when you're ready, you can take the elements.